Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Asher Marketing Podcast. I'm Anthony Giuliano, and my guest is Corey Sprunger. Corey, how you doing? Doing good. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I know you are a busy person, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. You just got a little bit of a break, hopefully in California. We did, yep. My wife's family's from California, so we got to get out there for Christmas and happy to be back in the Hoosier State. All right. And were the kids with you? They were. Okay. All right. And how was your weather? The weather in California is very different than Indiana. <laughs> so when it was 50, 60, they were, you know, putting their parkas yeah, on and yeah, all that, and we yeah. thought we were in pretty good shape. Yeah. And you went right over, was it right over the holiday itself? Yeah, right over okay. Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, so you missed a nice Arctic blast here in Indiana. So you got out of town at the right time. We so. did. We were happy for it. <laughs> so good call. Good call. Well, um, we want to talk a little bit about the work you're doing with a new entity, Sprunger PEO. But before we get to that, I want to talk about your career path. And I want you to start at whatever the beginning is for you. Obviously, you ended up as an attorney, you have an entrepreneurial streak, you have some political work that you do. When did you start thinking about all those things? And what path were you originally on? Did you stay on that path or you did, did you divert from it? Well, that's a good question. When I was in, <clears throat> in uh, high school, uh, one of my friends uh, had came to me and said, do you want to be a page in the Indiana Senate? Mm -hmm. And I said, that sounds fun. But then I went home and thought, if the Indiana Senate has pages, I'll bet you the U.S. Senate has pages. <laughs> and so I looked it up, applied, and really had nothing special on my resume, but somehow got lucky enough and got picked. And so okay. I went out there as a high school student for a half a year. And that kind of set the trajectory for, I don't want to say bigger picture thinking mm -hmm. maybe, but just not being constrained by boxes all the time. Yeah. So I did that. And then in uh, undergrad, went back out to D.C., mm -hmm. worked in the Bush White House mm -hmm. and the Republican National Committee a couple of years um, and sort of went that direction mm -hmm. and then decided to go into law school because I want to make laws someday. I want to mm -hmm. be part of public service. Mm -hmm. Um but then I decided to come back home and start my own practice here in Indiana. Mm -hmm. We went to Pepperdine out in California, but decided to come back home. Mm -hmm. So I brought my wife with me and came back to the Hoosier State, started a family here uh, in my hometown of Bern, Indiana. Um, and since then, we just, like I said, keep the boxes open. And yeah. we started thinking about what it means to be a lawyer in a small town mm -hmm. and the very unique obstacles that are presented. So... What what made you decide to go to Pepperdine? Was it the program? Was it that you had met your wife and she was there, or what was the what was the attraction to going out to California? Um, that is a long story, but the short <laughs> version of it um, is that there was the Saturday before law school started. Okay, and I hadn't decided between IU Bloomington and Pepperdine yet. Okay, and right. I had offers at both. Yeah. And I was working on a, a presidential campaign out in Iowa. Yeah. So I had everything I had in my car, and I <laughs> had to either stay put or go west or go east. Okay. And uh, I, uh, I'm i a faith-based person, so I went off into a cornfield, mm -hmm. and I said, God, you got to tell me. There's no more waiting. I got to know. Yeah. And uh, through a series of events, I felt really strongly that he said, you can go to either one. Mm -hmm. They will fit in my plan. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, Malibu sounds a lot more fun than Bloomington. <laughs> well, if it's good for you, <laughs> so we're going to go to the beach, yeah. Yeah, so the next day, went out that direction and uh, got there by Tuesday. Uh, orientation was Tuesday and met my wife in line uh, at orientation. Uh, huh. And lo and behold, she was uh, down to Bloomington and Pepperdine as well. Huh. So it makes you wonder, you know, how that would have played out. Okay, so your wife is raised in, in California. 
What was the conversation like when you said you wanted to move back home? <laughs> uh, it was not too much of an issue. She had been to Indiana before. Yeah. She uh, did a lot of F- FA stuff. Mm-hmm. And so she had been to the national convention. Yep. And so she was familiar with Indiana. Yeah. Um, at the time, was back in the Governor Daniels era. And, she, you know, a lot of people she had worked with when she yep. was out in D.C., she worked for Congressman Nunes. They had said a lot of good things about Indiana. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so she had a positive impression yeah. of our state. And, um, you know, I think her family may have been a little bit less excited yeah. about the idea. But um, I think it fit our personality and our culture mm-hmm. a lot more so than California did. Yeah. Well, and I asked that question, and hopefully it came off as respectful, because I did the same thing. I grew up in Massachusetts and moved here. And there are a lot of people in Massachusetts like, what's in Indiana? Where's Indiana? And I've been here ever since. Been here for 30 years now. So I, I understand some of the attraction of it. But California has better weather than Massachusetts. Yes, it does. So I didn't know if it was more of a fight. <laughs> so, um, so you have a, a really multifaceted professional life, if you can call it that, service life. You've got let me make sure I get everything here. Sprunger and Sprunger, which is a law firm. You have Sprunger PO, which we're going to talk about in depth, which is outsourced services for small firms and solo practitioners. You have an interest in missions, and you have an interest in public service politics. How do you make all that work? I don't know yet. We're working on that. <laughs> I mean, they're all passions. And I think at the end of the day, the theme for all of me is just don't limit yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you have an idea, there's a lot of, I think a lot of people put boxes around yourself and say, mm-hmm. can't be done. Yep. And to me, when someone says it can't be done, I, the next question is why? Mm-hmm. And then they give you an answer. Okay. But why that? Mm-hmm. And you just keep asking. And nine times out of 10, the why's really aren't great. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, why limit it? Yeah. So, you know, originally we decided to come back to Indiana. I went around to a couple different law firms in the area, and they just were not good fits for different mm-hmm. reasons. And I thought, you know what? There's not a lot of attorneys in my hometown. Why can't I just start a practice? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people said, you can't start your own business right out of law school. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't know. You don't know me. Like, I, I think I probably could. Yeah. And so we did. Mm-hmm. And that sort of started this whole trajectory. And and what has it been like being in partnership, in a business partnership with your spouse? What are, the, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the good things about it? Yeah. Well, I know there's a lot of people that probably would not enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, to be honest, I couldn't imagine not doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all three years of law school, we took the same classes, studied together, took the bar together, same finals. You know, so to not be working together for us, I guess, would be challenging. Yeah. You know, she does have her own practice caseload than mine. So for a while, they were very different. You know, we didn't see each other that much, even though it was the same business. It's more so now, now that we're, you know, she's changed practice areas. And so we're doing it a lot more together than we were. And we really like that. Yeah. And how old are your kids? Well, we have three kids right now, so we've got a six-year-old, four-year-old, and just turned two-year-old. Okay. All right. So so maybe less sleep than you'd like sometimes, but it all works together. Yes. So what was it, and, and you've alluded to this, you know, it's, it aligns with where you are from a value standpoint, but is there anything else you can point to that made you say, I'm going to take a different path. I'm going to do what a lot of attorneys don't want to do. I'm going to be an entrepreneur in addition to practicing law. I'm going to do it in a small town, and I'm not going to chase some of the things that other people are chasing. Is there anything specific you can point to that puts you on that path? 
I mean, I w- would go back to that time. <clears throat> I know this might not seem like it connects, but I would go back to that time when I was a page in the Senate. It was for mm-hmm. Senator Luger at the time. Mm-hmm. Sitting on the Senate floor watching these 100 people do things yeah. and the decisions that those 100 people made every day affected all 300 million people in our country. Mm-hmm. And because we're the country we are, the whole world. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, I want to do something someday that affects people. Mm-hmm. I want to matter. Mm-hmm. And so I went to law school really not to be a lawyer. That was never the goal. Mm -hmm. So for me, I did it because I thought I wanted to get into public service someday. Mm -hmm. Um, But then once I got into law school, did all that, then came back to start a practice, once we got there, I'm just not like other lawyers. My brain is not wired like a lawyer. It's wired like a business person. Mm-hmm. And so I came at it from a very different approach. Yep. So did you have, was there any entrepreneurship in your family when you were a kid or is this brand new? No, not really. Um, I mean, I did like mowing lawns and things like that, you know, <laughs> yeah. and started a little eBay company while I was in junior high, but yeah. that was me, I suppose. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about what you're doing now. And, and I want to focus on certainly talk about any of the aspects of your professional life. But the one that's super intriguing to me for a lot of different reasons is what you're doing with Sprunger PEO. For those who might not know what a PEO, PEO is, if you can explain that and then talk about what you're trying to accomplish with the business. Yeah. <clears throat> so traditionally, a PEO is a professional employer organization. Mm-hmm. And the concept with PEOs has traditionally been for um, smaller businesses that want to outsource their HR needs. That's mm-hmm. usually what it has been. Um, so in Indiana, it's a licensed agency. You go through the Department of Insurance to get these things created. And the idea is um, we all work together. Mm-hmm. So instead mm-hmm. of each one of all these little companies having their own HR person Mm -hmm. and having their own payroll processing and all this, you can combine the effect of everybody. Now you can qualify for employee benefits that you never could Mm -hmm. with a two-person shop. Yep. That's how it started. Okay. We're taking it to the next level, which is let's do that for HR and payroll, but let's also do it for all the other things that small law firms in particular need. Mm -hmm. So accounting, payroll like normal, then you add in IT, phone receptionists, um, mail processing. There's no reason that we all need to be doing this stuff. Sure. And where are you focused in terms of the size firms that you want to help? What do those look like? The biggest bang, the biggest influence is going to be people, uh, law firms who are probably in that one to five Mm -hmm. lawyer firm. Yep. There's definitely a benefit for those above that. But what happens is the bigger you get, the more you naturally, you don't even have to think about it, you start um, having administrative staff for the Mm -hmm. whole team. So all of a sudden it makes sense to have an IT person. Instead of all of us doing little bits of IT, we have one guy. Mm -hmm. But when you're only two of you in a firm, you can't have an IT guy. Together, now all of a sudden we say, all right, this firm of two, this firm of two, that firm of two, none of us could afford an IT guy. Together, we can have an IT guy yep. or an IT team. Yeah. So where you don't have those natural economies of scale because you've got 50 attorneys, you're bringing them to these small firms so they can spend more time practicing law and focusing on clients. Right. And I, I think about the big firms out there. Nobody had to tell them, 
you know, you've got 50 yeah. lawyers here. Why yeah. don't you <laughs> designate somebody to do your IT? Yeah. Like they, it's, it's just natural. Sure. So we're just doing the same thing, but we're bridging the gaps of geography and okay. putting them together. So this is, this is a, a good business idea, but it's also aligned with something that I know from you and I having talked is important to you in terms of making small firm practice viable in small towns. Talk a little bit about why that's important to you and what are some of the challenges that attorneys otherwise might face? Right. So Indiana is not unique in this, but I happen to know Indiana stats better since we live here. So in Indiana, um, well, to start with, we're the 10th fewest, st- the, the 10th lowest in terms of attorneys per capita. Mm-hmm. So we have a low number of attorneys to start with. Is there any specific reason you can point to why that is? I would say primarily because of this nationwide trend of lots of attorneys in the urban areas mm-hmm. and super few attorneys in the rural. And because we don't have a lot of urban mm-hmm. areas, mm-hmm. that puts us to the lower end. Got it. So if you break that down in Indiana, we've got 92 counties. Mm-hmm. Of those 92 counties, 60% of our lawyers are concentrated in four counties. Mm-hmm. So you get outside of those four counties, you've got 88 counties with 40% of the lawyers. Mm-hmm. Another way to put it is if you do it on a per capita basis, the number of lawyers per citizens is 300% less mm-hmm. outside of those four counties. Mm-hmm. So the problem is there are no lawyers out there mm-hmm. to do the work. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, I would imagine it's compounded by the fact, and tell me if this is wrong, but a lot of young people have ambitions to go to larger urban areas, at least at the start of their career. So that's that's a pretty big challenge to take on because ultimately what you're doing is in addition to running a law firm, in addition to having a small family, in addition to doing some public service, you have a startup. So what are some of the things you're doing to offset some of the objections in the industry, some of the things that might, you know, get in the way? What are you doing to address those? Right. So the issue, you know, the way we look at it, there's three bound there's three barriers, I guess you could call it, to starting um, to young professionals coming back to rural areas. And the first one, um, well, let me back up, I guess, and just say this. You know, it poses the question, why doesn't the normal market forces fix this? You know, because typically you'd think, all right, we've got a low supply and high demand. Why don't prices just shoot up, which then causes the fix all by itself? Like, why isn't that happening? Um, And really, it comes down to these three reasons. The first is um, you've got a barrier that even if you were to come out here, you can't capitalize on high bills because you have to spend so much of your day running the business. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the average lawyer in Indiana is only billing 2.5 hours out of an eight-hour day, Mm -hmm. which means they're not doing what they went to school for. Sure. They're they're running a business. Mm -hmm. So we can fix that. Mm -hmm. The second barrier is the high cost because you're buying everything at a premium because you're buying it for one or two people. Mm-hmm. We fix that. Mm-hmm. And the third barrier is the perception, which mm-hmm. is somewhat what you're getting at. Yeah. And there's this idea that I got to be kind of ritzy in a big city and all this. Yeah. But there are a whole lot of attorneys that would like that that small town feel. Yeah. They feel like they're making an impact. They just yeah. don't think it's doable. Yeah. Well, and you know, my, my experience having moved from, you know, a large suburban area, you know, outside of Boston, is that it is way easier to connect the dots, even in Fort Wayne, which is bigger than some of the rural areas you're seeking to serve, way easier to connect the dots. If you you want to make a difference, you can. Um, You know, the, the joke that I always say is that 
when I was growing up in Boston, there was people whose full-time job was to keep me away from the mayor. Now you live in a city where the mayor opens the door for you because it's just that type of community. And I think that's magnified in smaller communities. So it's a, it's a difference of you might not have the lifestyle that looks that great on Instagram or looks as good on Instagram, but you have a real life. You have the ability to make a difference, the ability to spend your time the way you'd like to spend it with the people who really matter. Well, and what I would say to those young professionals that are that maybe have that perception is, look, do you want to matter? Do you want to make a difference in the world? Do you want to have a work-life balance? Do you want to have more than just your work? And the answer to all those things is what a small town opportunity yeah. offers. Sure. I know I sat one day in our church balcony. Um, that's where we usually sit. And I looked down. You know, we have a church of about 300 or so. And I looked through and I looked at all the pews. I mean, obviously, I wasn't paying attention to this sermon at the moment, but I'm looking through yeah. here, and I, and I thought, you know what? Every single pew except for one, I helped somebody in that mm-hmm. pew. Yeah. And that you, you go to a big firm, no, yeah. that is not for how it sure. works. You can't even say that about your colleagues who you work with. <laughs> right. I helped all of them because they're working in silos. So um, this is the Asher Marketing Podcast, so I'll ask you a marketing question. What are some of the challenges you ran into from getting the name out there in terms of building the brand, connecting with prospects? Obviously, we'll disclaim that we're working together on this, and we appreciate the opportunity to do that. But what are some of the things you're focused on personally in building a business from the ground up and making this concept, which is a fairly new concept, known to the folks you're hoping to reach? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the biggest things is that you can have all of the benefits of the small town and have all of the income of a big town. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is hugely instrumental in bringing and making the viability of small towns. It's not just for the lawyers who are coming back, but the small towns themselves yeah. need this. And it's not just us. I mean, there's a shortage of physicians, doctors. I mean, there's a physician of all kinds of professionals coming yeah. back. Yeah. And if we can bridge these kind of gaps, that gives the small town the viability for the future. Well, it becomes viable and it becomes you know viral in a sense. If you have you know professionals who are working in the community and helping stimulate the economy, it's easier to attract those other groups of professionals, but it's got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, so let me ask you a question going back to something we've discussed, but I, I want to hear your perspective on why burn Indiana? What what makes burn special? Why are you there? Why do you stay there? You could do, you know, you could move to a small town just about anywhere, but why is burn the place you want to be in? Well, burn is home for me. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, where I grew up. That's who I know. All small towns are special, I think, but to me, burn really is a little bit extra special, mm-hmm. not just because I grew up there, but the longer I've been there, the longer I realize it's different. You know, Mm -hmm. there really is something a little bit special about it. You know, I think all small towns, you go to the grocery store and you see people, you know, Mm -hmm. especially growing up, having kids growing up now. Yeah. And I remember my dad used to tell me when I was growing up, he said, if you do something wrong, you better tell me because someone else is going to tell me and it'll be a lot better if I get it from you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people would not like that. But the flip side is now that I'm raising kids, 
I like the fact that the whole town are kind of parents, you yeah. know, to some extent. Yeah. Well, and, and kids need those. I was definitely a kid who needed those boundaries and didn't always have them. But, you know, as someone, my son's now 23, but I, I liked, again, Fort Wayne's a little bit larger, but I liked the accountability that I knew there were going to be eyes on him and that, you know, we kind of had this relationship where you can see what I do affects you and how how you are perceived and the same is true. And I think that made him a little bit of a better person. <laughs> At least I hope so. <laughs> Either that or I lucked out. Um, let's talk a little bit about the team that's helping you do this because you're not an IT professional. You have some HR knowledge, but you're not an HR professional. How are you making this happen and actually deliver the services that you're providing to the firms you're working with? Right. Well, it comes down to basically strength in numbers, mm-hmm. right? So the more numbers we get, the better this is going to go. Yeah. Um, you know, we get an IT professional in who knows what they're doing. And then we say, what are the vulnerabilities? Mm-hmm. What are the things that solo and small firms don't know are yeah. a risk? Mm-hmm. And then we get in there and we start saying, okay, yeah, we could get ransomware. We got to mm-hmm. do something about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. We could get, you know, a wire fraud, you know, and then mm-hmm. you start talking to the insurance companies and they say, oh yeah, you got major problems. Mm-hmm. And then you say, all right, all these solo small firms have no clue. That's not what we went to school for. Sure, sure. So let's get someone in that does know mm-hmm. and get us all on way better footing than mm-hmm. we were. So it's about bringing those people in yep. who know what they're doing. And the more this thing continues to snowball and the more people that are willing to work together, just the better everything gets. Yeah. So what is your vision down the line? Where do you want Springer PEO to ultimately be? Do you want to stay focused on Indiana? Do you want to expand? What What are you hoping the business becomes? Yeah. I mean, I've never been one to limit things. Mm-hmm. So right now we have... Um, I think I think we have nine locations working with us right now, and there's no reason to limit that. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's a scale, very scalable thing. Yeah. So the more firms that work together, the more that we're doing this, um, the more options open themselves up. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I think is a, could be a benefit down the road, which we really haven't explored too much yet, but we can almost start to make a network where we can refer to each other, talk mm-hmm. to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you you can't have any kind of referral arrangements. I'm not saying that, but you have somebody you can talk to, yeah, someone sure. that you know. You know, you might be down in Evansville, and you've got a client calling about somewhere in Angola, and you're like, hey, you know what? I've got a firm that, that we collaborate on. Mm-hmm. Let me hand you over to these guys, and you trust them, and you know them. Yeah, and they're not a competitor right? because of, geograph- because of geography and, and other factors, and maybe it's a different practice. So you, you're in, you know, the, the law firm world. It's a relationship business. But in the PEO world, you've got to harness technology. How are you bridging that gap between the relationship piece, people have to be trusted in order for the the business to thrive, and leveraging technology in a business that maybe has been a little bit late to the game with some of the technology? What are you doing to bridge that gap? Well, I think you're 100% correct on that. So law firms are unique in that there is a there is an ethics rule that you cannot own a law firm unless you're a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I completely understand the rule. An unintended consequence of that rule is lawyers, if they wanted to be a business owner, they didn't go to law school. Yeah. So what happens is you've just eliminated the pool of ownership out mm-hmm. there to people who mm-hmm. are, you know, that's not their first priority sure. to innovate. Yep. So we are behind the game mm-hmm. when it comes to these things. Now, 
Uh, I think it's Arizona, if I'm not mistaken. They just got rid of that rule. Mm. And the UK has already gotten rid of it, I believe. Some other, I think Australia may have as well. Mm -hmm. These are all former English common law Mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. So if that happens here, then there will be a unleashing because you'll have some big investors come into the place and say, hey, you guys are 20 years behind. Mm -hmm. And they will dump in. And and if we're not ready for that, we're all going to be in a little bit of a shock. Yeah, sure. So the technology is there. It's very easy to do, very Mm -hmm. scalable. It's not hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And once we've got it all figured out, it's easy to roll out. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it's strange because, you know, and I I know – very little about the law firm world. I worked in it for about 10 minutes <laughs> and, you know, I've done work with some clients. But the the name of the game in the industry for the big firms has been mergers and acquisitions. Small firms being acquired by bigger firms, which become bigger firms. It's It's almost like you're doing that on the administrative side, but allowing them to keep their independence in terms of their practice, how they run it, their culture, the people they bring on board, um, and allowing them, in a sense, to compete with those big firms without becoming big firms. Is that part of the goal? Yeah, that's definitely right. I mean, it also kind of comes back to the big firms can't get any bigger because there's only so many clients out there, Mm -hmm. and they're all in the big cities. Mm -hmm. So the big cities are oversaturated. Mm -hmm. So they can't just you know, get more attorneys and go get more clients, there's not enough of them. Yeah. The big the small firms are exactly the opposite. Out in the small town, we can't service the clients. There's yeah. not enough of us. Yeah. So if we can we don't have to play that merger game. But what we can do is just say, how can you make an attorney go from billing two and a half hours to servicing their community with six, seven, eight hours yeah. of their day? Yeah. Okay. So in your one hundred percent of Corey hours that you have to use every week what percentage of your time is going into Sprunger PEO and how are you dividing the rest of the pie? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. No, I don't know. We, um, yeah, that's a great question. We, a lot of what I'm doing right now is teaching, training, and getting things going. Mm-hmm. You know, one of our staff made the point today. They said, you know, you really are or need to be a teacher of teachers. Like, mm-hmm. you can't be teaching everybody everything. Yeah. So we're trying to, you know, leverage that a little bit and get that going. But, but yeah, there's a lot of irons in the fire right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, with that, let's pivot to the quick hit part of the show where I ask you a few questions that maybe lead to concise answers, if I can ask the questions concisely. The first has, has to do with career advice. You've got young kids, probably too soon to be talking to them about careers, but hopefully you can uh, influence their thinking a little bit. What do you think is the most important thing for people to focus on when it comes to career success and fulfillment? Well, truthfully, I would say, um, you know, I do believe that all of us are, we're all made in God's image. I do believe that. And so to me, what is he calling you to do? You don't need to know every single little detail, but where do you feel called? What kind of thing? Everything else will line up. It'll match. Figure out what you feel called to. And if you're honest with yourself and don't, don't just say what you want to think you want to hear, mm-hmm. what are you called to? Yeah. And then go do that and, yeah. you know, do it well. Well, and I think it's also, especially for someone like you, who's running a business and depending on the expertise of others, it's also important as part of that to recognize what your lane is not and say, there's people out there who are better at this than me. They've got it. I'm going to focus on what I do well and you know, really add value in that way. Yeah. And I, I do remember telling some people recently, 
I said, make yourself valuable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes people will say, well, I want to raise or I want this. And I'm like, look, from the owner's perspective, from the rest of the world's perspective, we're a capitalist society. Mm -hmm. That means make yourself valuable. Mm -hmm. You want to be paid well, if that's the, if that is what your goal is, then find something that's valuable to somebody else. Because that's the, the government doesn't, shouldn't just give you money. Everybody else should say what's valuable and I want to make a trade. Yeah. You do this good for me, I give you this. So what's valuable? Yeah. Well, one of my favorite quotes, it's a little bit of a cliche, is Zig Ziglar who says, I may botch the quote, but something to the effect of um, if you help enough people, you will get all the help you need. And that includes income. That includes support. Um, but it starts with taking the first step and being the person who is valuable, as you say, and is of service to others. Then all kinds of good stuff will find you. But if you're not willing to do that first, if you wait for someone else to help you, it's not going to happen. Right. So second question, this is either going to be a really difficult one or a softball. What are some things about your working world that are myth con- misconceptions or myths? Could be about being an attorney, it could be about being a business owner, could be about this new business that you're getting off the ground that you would like to debunk or some things that maybe aren't as well appreciated as you'd like them to be. One thing I would say is that I don't care what the profession is, there's good people and bad. Mm-hmm. Every profession. I remember when I was out in DC seeing that. You got good people, a whole lot of mediocre people, and then bad people. Mm-hmm. The law firms are no different. You've got good, mediocre, and bad. Mm-hmm. And so I think what happens though is people tend to focus on the bad. Mm-hmm. And so especially in the, the lawyer world, they have a problem and they need it fixed. And the last thing they wanna do is pay more money to somebody to fix it. Yeah. But that's where the value comes in is that you do have a problem. I can fix that. Yeah. It costs money, but I can fix it. Yeah. Well, and, and everyone has lawyer jokes until they need a lawyer, right? Right. <laughs> and then it's not so funny anymore. Yeah. Like I said, there's good lawyers and bad lawyers. So, And I tend to think that in the smaller communities, you get more of the, the focus on results and maybe less on you know, paying me and things like that. And so I, I think, you know, that's a not to bring it back to the small firm again, but I think you do see more of that. Yeah, for sure. All right, last quick hit question. What is something you use in your work? And and you're obviously seeing a lot of different types of work get done. It could be a tool, could be a trick, could be old school, could be new school, could be tech, could be analog. Something that you use to get the work done that you think's, uh, think is deserving of, of being recognized. Well, it probably sounds cliche, but being paperless is where we have to be. Yeah. And there's resistance to that, especially, you know, if if you haven't been that way, transitioning to that is hard. Mm -hmm. If you can start from scratch that way, that will make life a lot easier. But that's where the world's going. And without that, this model or any other model is not going to work. Mm So you'll get lawyers that say, well, you can't be a paperless lawyer like that's what we do we have paper but that's not true yeah. i mean i have a computer and i don't ever have paper yeah like ever yeah and you know even just a few years ago the legislature allowed us to change it where you don't have to sign wills mm-hmm. on paper anymore mm-hmm. so now we don't have to keep track of the original what if yeah. there's a fire what if there's a flood all of that's gone yeah well and and you know the way i've always looked at it is someone who has been blissfully paperless for years the bigger the far bigger risk is with paper than with something that's sort of electronically everything comes with a risk 
But, you know, Google probably has better security for documents than I do in my home. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Where do you think that resistance comes from? Is it the fact that attorneys are taught to act on precedent? So the precedent is we have paper, therefore we're going to continue to have it. <clears throat> is it being risk averse? Is it all those things? <clears throat> I think just like with any person anywhere, I don't know that law firms are any different. People don't like change. Yeah. So if you're used to paper, learning how to not use paper is not fun. It's, yeah. it's new. It's something else you got to learn. And yeah. we're all busy, so we don't want to use our mental space learning something. We'd rather use it being productive. Sure. But if we can realize that, yeah, give up, you know, X number of hours to learn how to convert, it will result in 5X of productivity next year and again the next year and again the next year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, Corey, you can convince attorneys of the wisdom of that, save them some time, allow them to do what they really like to do, spend more time with clients and make more money. It's a big task, but sounds like you're off to a good start. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for doing it. And thanks for everyone. Thanks to everyone, excuse me, who took the time to listen to this episode of the Asher Marketing Podcast. We'll be back next time with another great guest and we hope you'll join us then. 